0: Well, Happy New Year. Wow, it's great to be here. I trust you all had a wonderful Christmas, that you had a pleasant New Year's Eve. By your presence here, I'm going to assume that means either you were not up too late or you're tired. One of those two things. Uh, Nadine and I had a great chance to uh, have uh, dinner together with some friends and go to a movie and then uh, we watched the, the, uh, the ball drop in two different time zones, but we actually missed it in our own time zone. But uh, <laughs> we uh, we got too tired before midnight, partially because I think I'm fighting a bit of a cold again, and I just wiped out my energy once more. But we're glad you're here. We uh, we got up this morning, and it's the start of 2017. And you always wonder what does this year have in store for us? Well, the first thing that I realize it has in store for us is when I was driving to church here this morning, the gas light came on in my truck, and so I'm probably one of the first people who filled up with the new carbon tax. <laughs> so <laughs> that we have to enjoy, Nick. As best as I can determine, that was about four cents a liter extra I paid today to, uh, to do that today. But I trust you had a great Christmas and New Year season. Uh, there's such a big build-up to Christmas. And uh, there's, there's all the shopping, and there's the Christmas cards, and the decorating, and the parties we go to, and all the church services that we have. And if you were with us prior to Christmas, you know that we are walking through uh, a sermon series in the four-week Advent series called Tune Into Christmas. And the whole point of that series was to to help us to get into the Christmas spirit, if you will, and give us an opportunity to to worship Jesus through some of the very common Christmas carols, Christmas songs that we sing, uh, that all point towards Jesus, who is the reason for the season, as they say. But now we find ourselves on the other side of that. We're on the other side of that date in the calendar, on the other side of that in the reality of our lives. And for a lot of us, that means that regular life resumes again. There's a many of us that are going back to work tomorrow. In a couple of days, the kids go back to school tomorrow. So in part, the purpose of today's sermon is in part to, to help us to also tune out Christmas, to, to move beyond and to tune out Christmas. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's, it's not wrong to do that because for better or for worse, we launch into a new year and life goes on. It goes on after the calendar ceases to say December. But as we do... We don't want to do it in a manner where we forget the spirit in which we had in December. We don't want to forget the spirit in which we were seeking a deeper understanding, looking to have a new or a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ through that Christmas season. We want to bring that with us somehow into the regular season of life because the wise people among us, the wise will still seek him even after the Christmas season. Now, throughout that Advent series, we talked extensively about how Mary and Joseph had gone through so many incredible events in the birth of Jesus. There there is the visits from angels. There is the immaculate conception, the the long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the fear of where are we going to stay. And then that moment arrives when, when in a stable... The baby is finally born amongst all the sounds and the smells of the animals and the chaos of the city. But then contrast that to to the angels that were proclaiming who this child was. Contrast that to the shepherds visiting and being filled with joy. And you can feel that sense of energy and that seeking Jesus brings a new sense of hope and joy and peace and fulfillment within us. And in the midst of all that, it comes to an end. In a short time after, Mary and Joseph find themselves, just the two of them, or wait, now it's the three of them, Mary, Joseph, and baby. And if you think back to a time when you first became a new parent, you probably know a bit of that feeling. I often hear from new couples when when I perhaps have gone through marriage preparation with them and had the opportunity to marry them, and then a little while later on, they had that first child arrive, and they talk about how things are different, and, and they have the excitement over the pregnancy, and then there's all the preparations for the baby coming. They have the baby showers and the celebrations, and then the delivery happens, and there's great excitement and great joy that, that the two have become three, but then that day comes when they're re- released from the hospital, and they get their $1,500 baby carrier And they go inside and they put the child in there and they drive home and they put baby in the middle of the living room. And they look at each other and go, now what do we do? We're parents. Now what do we do? Now I think the sense was a little bit different with Mary and Joseph. But there's some similarities. They reached that point where the shepherds had come and gone. The angels had come and gone. And now it was Mary, Joseph, and baby. Life would never be the same again, though. Things were different, but life would never be the same again. And they had this new responsibility to look after. And I can imagine Joseph looking at Mary, these first-time parents. But not just parents of a baby, parents of the Messiah. And Joseph looking at Mary and saying, what do we do now, Mary? Our baby is the Messiah. Now, Scripture is a little vague. Scripture is actually a little vague on, on what exactly happened. But we do get some of the first clues found uh, in a passage that we're going to focus upon today. Uh, if you have got your Bibles with you or in your phones there, you can open up to the book of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to walk through verses 1 through 12. And, and we get a little bit of glimpses from Scripture as to what happened in the days that follow. You see, this is the story that's common to many of us. It's the story of the Magi or, or the wise men who came to visit Jesus. Now, as Matthew chapter 1 ends, we see that it ends with the birth of the baby, and they named him Jesus. And then as chapter 2 opens, we get a glimpse into the days that followed after that. Because after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, as Matthew tells us, they continued to live in Bethlehem. Now, remember, this whole story started in Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph lived. But then they traveled to Bethlehem for the census according to the order of the emperor. Now, we're not told exactly why, but we do know that early on, the family decided to relocate from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and they set up residence there. They didn't leave. Perhaps it was because of the social pressures that took place back in Nazareth. Maybe there was all those rumors swirling around about the Immaculate Conception that took place, and they wanted to be away from that and have that fresh start. Because you can imagine, if you were a friend of Mary or Joseph at the time, was that story going to going to float? There's all sorts of questions around that. Now, we've come to know that as, as truth and who Jesus was, but at the time, I'm sure there was all sorts of social challenges that were that were around that story. But also, Joseph had roots in Bethlehem. It was his ancestral city. And they had probably some fond memories of family that had been there before. And Also, let's not forget, this was the Christ child. So perhaps there's wisdom in being close to Jerusalem, being close to the temple, which is just five miles south of Bethlehem. We're not sure exactly what it was, why they relocated, why they stayed in Bethlehem, but they established a new home there. And I'm sure that included a new carpentry shop for Joseph and and the need to find new friends and a new place of worship for this young family to attend. And there they started to live and raise their family. And all of this happened during the time of Herod the Great as he came to be known. Now you've probably heard that phrase before, Herod the Great. Now that the great part he actually kind of added that himself probably because it was <laughs> it was sort of a self-appointed title if you will. And it refers much more to the building and the regional development that happened during his rule more so than his character. You see this is all during the time of Herod the Great, which was a time of splendor where there were incredible theaters and monuments and pagan altars and fortresses that were built. He even, he even rebuilt the temple to, uh, to kind of help out, keep peace amongst the Jewish people who were there. But this man who was appointed king, who was appointed king by Rome, was known as a man who was ruthless. He was power hungry, and he was highly suspicious of anybody who even hinted at threatening his power, his throne. And he would have them killed. Anyone who threatened his power, he killed a wife, he killed three sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many others were killed just to preserve his position. And so into the courts of Herod walk these wise men from the east. And they look at this temporal appointed leader, this temporally appointed king of the Jews, and they ask him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, these three men are referred to as by different names and different traditions. Some refer to them as wise men, some as kings, some as magi. But regardless of what name we attach to them, they were leading figures in the religious courts of the country from which they came. The tools of their trade were things like astrology and diplomacy, of uh, religious prophecy, uh, incantations, things of this nature. And... It is thought that they've traveled from somewhere in Babylon over 900 miles to follow that star. That's the same distance as going from, say, Edmonton to Seattle on a camel, which would be considered first-class accommodations. And their entourage following behind with all of their attendants and all of their guards traveling in coach, which means they're walking beside the camel. And they set out for several months over 900 miles on what amounts to the very first Star Trek into the desert, the final frontier. (laughs) Now, I find it amazing that right from the very earliest accounts of Jesus, people from diverse places, people from diverse traditions and backgrounds are drawn to him. But what is it about Jesus? What is it about Jesus that draws people to him? Because even as a young child, there's just something about him. It it wasn't his miracles. He's just a toddler at this point, remember. He's barely walking. He can't be his teaching. He can barely string together two words at this point, yet alone a sentence. But throughout the whole story of of Jesus, from beginning to end, we see that God is drawing all types of people to him. We see that the angels heralded the good news to the shepherds and sent a call for them to go and find Jesus. The Holy, through the Holy Spirit's leading and promising, we see that Simeon and Anna were promised that they would not die before they encountered the Messiah. The wise men here in our story today have their attention fixed upon a star and traveled great, great distances at incredible cost, at incredible effort to seek Jesus. But what about in your own life as well? What about in your own life? What is it that brought you here today? Whether you personally know Jesus or not, why are you here? I'm not suggesting you should leave. But have you ever considered that question? Why are you here? Have you ever thought that perhaps it's not by accident that you're here today? Because I, I honestly believe that nobody comes to have an encounter with Jesus... Of their own initiative. We read about this actually in John chapter 6, when Jesus says these words, He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So I invite you to consider what person, what event, what, what situation, what has God used that brought you to a point of seeking Jesus in your life, perhaps even seeking him in this place? And if you're able to answer those questions, if you're able to identify what those things and what those people and what those events are, then you're starting to actually understand what we would refer to as your faith story. What is your faith story? Which can be defined as the who, what, and how God used to draw you unto himself. And it's a personal story for each of us. It'll be as unique as each of us are. And it will reveal how God specifically and uniquely works in each of our lives for the purpose of drawing us into a deeper relationship with him. And once we can put some language to this story, here's what ends up happening. It ends up, number one, being become, becoming a powerful faith builder and faith sustainer in our lives during difficult times. We talked about that before Christmas during the Advent series. It also becomes a powerful evangelistic tool for you. As you can start to begin to share with others the reality of Jesus in your life. As you start to finish the sentence, you know, if it weren't for Jesus in my life, and then you can personally finish that story. And the beautiful thing about your faith story is nobody can argue with you. If you want to debate theology, if you want to debate history, if you want to debate scholarly things, they can debate that with you from different perspectives. Nobody can tell you that Jesus didn't have an impact in your life. That is your story, your impression that you can, sh- you can share with them. But also, the third thing that our faith story does is it teaches you to better see and hear God's movement in your lives and to see him in the world around. If we can have eyes to see what he's doing in our lives, those, that vision can start to expand to see what he's doing in the world around us as well. And because of Christmas, God has entered into history in the person of Jesus Christ And the world is never again the same, and we can have these faith stories. But you see, that's exactly what Herod is afraid of in this story. When he hears these wise men's question, it deeply troubles him. And as the story continues, it says that he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, all of Jerusalem is probably a little bit of an exaggeration going on there because I'm sure they didn't survey all of the people of Jerusalem to see if they were disturbed. But what it's actually referring to here is all of the religious and political leaders were disturbed with Herod. And it makes sense if you think about it because they had all aligned themselves together. They were all on the same page. And so a threat to Herod was a threat to their position too. Now, Herod was not the real king. He was appointed by Rome. And so if all of a sudden a new king who was king by birthright showed up on the scene, he had every right to claim his rightful rule. And that meant trouble. That meant trouble for everyone who was in line with Herod. So everybody had something to lose. So Herod assembles them all together. And he inquires of them. And he says, where is this Christ child supposed to be born? And as they talk through this, they tell Herod of a prophecy. A prophecy from the prophet Micah from over 700 years earlier, where Micah said this, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And now with more of these pieces of the puzzle falling into place, the concern within Herod is growing. And so he secretly calls the wise men back into his courts again. And he says he says, "What did you say led you here? Led you here to this place? Right. A star. And when did that first appear to you? Right, A number of months ago. So as he considers all of this, and he can feel the suspicion growing, that suspicion is now replaced with fear, and Herod knows what he must do, so he devises a plan, and he says to them, "Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go." And make careful search for that child. And as soon as you find him, you've got to report back to me so that I may go and um, worship him. Yeah, so I may go and worship him. Now, isn't it amazing that right from the very beginning, Jerusalem's religious leaders and political leaders were very negative towards Jesus? Jesus. There is even fear of him as, as a young child, as a toddler. There's even fear of him at that point. But this is actually not unique. We know that that was something that, that surrounded Jesus his entire ministry, and it even exists today to some degree. If you think about it, when people encounter Jesus today, they themselves are faced with a tough question. As soon as you talk to somebody about Jesus or they hear his name or they encounter the person or the teachings or the idea or the reality of Jesus, they're faced with the tough question, who do you say Jesus is? Now, there are many things in people's lives that will keep them from seeing the truth of who Jesus is. There's many things that will keep them from accepting Jesus as the Son of God, from believing that He is the Savior of the world, from proclaiming Him the Lord of their lives. There are many things that will keep people from acknowledging and accepting those things because as soon as we cross that line and agree to any of those statements, it costs us something. That's why Paul says this of Jesus. He says that Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and He is folly to the Gentiles. As we've already seen played out here, with Herod and the religious leaders, these people who have chosen to align themselves together are supposed to be God's chosen people who lived in a time where they were awaiting the Messiah, who knew that when he arrived, it would mean redemption for the people, restoration for the nation. It would mean the establishment of the perfect rule upon earth. They knew that the Messiah was the one through whom all people would have the opportunity to experience God's love and justice and mercy and peace, but instead of rejoicing, they experience fear because they know that if they accept that he has arrived, that this is the long-awaited Messiah, it's going to cost them something, and what it's going to cost them is their kingdoms. That if they accept that this is the coming of the kingdom of God, they have to give up their own kingdoms, the kingdoms of their own building. Now contrast that with the wise men. People from a foreign land and from foreign traditions who are drawn to this place by a star that they followed, who are willing to give, to give of their time, of their energy, their resources for this long, long journey. They're willing to put their lives on hold. They're willing to leave their loved ones, to risk safety, to risk comfort. They're willing to risk all of that, to give up all of that that is theirs already, to leave that behind for the opportunity to encounter Jesus, who is the Messiah. You know, every person that we encounter today, every person here has the same choice as well. That as God draws them unto himself, they're faced with that choice. They're faced with that question of who is Jesus and for those who are willing to accept the reality of who he is. He makes a promise. He promises that to all who will receive him, to all of those who will believe in his name, that they have the right to become children of God. And so I ask you this question and follow up to that. What will following Jesus in 2017 cost you? As you look at the year ahead, this is January 1st. We've got the entire year ahead of us. Accepting Jesus, following Jesus, costs us something. What will it cost you this year? Perhaps it'll cost you some long-held ideas. For, for, For the first time, you'll be allowing yourself to consider the reality of who Jesus is. Perhaps it'll even cost you some friends and family. I know multiple people who, when they when they accept Jesus Christ as Savior and start to live according to His ways, they don't reject their friends and family, but their friends and family reject them. That happens quite often, and that costs that person something. Perhaps it'll cost you pride. Perhaps there'll be a need to to lay down that worldly kingdom. Perhaps it'll cost the need to lay down that kingdom we've built for ourselves and instead join God in the kingdom that he is seeking to build? What will it cost you in 2017? And as you answer that question, do you see that as a threat? A threat to yourself? Or do you see this as an opportunity to join a loving Savior in what he's trying to do in you and through you and around this place? Well, having invested so much in this journey already, and being so close to finding the Messiah the wise men press on to the final leg of their journey towards the Christ child. And Matthew goes on to tell us in verse 9 that after they had heard the king, they went on their way and then the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the home of Mary and Joseph. Now Joseph had upgraded the home from a stable to to a meager but comfortable house. And as that light of that star shone in the window, perhaps Mary and Joseph had a bit of a flashback recalling the night that the star shone above the manger and angels were proclaiming and shepherds came to worship them. And they hear a knock on the door and as they go to open it, this time they're not met by, by scruffy, smelly shepherds. But instead, they're met with visitors from a foreign land who are well-groomed, who are wearing fine linens and have a huge entourage behind them. And upon seeing Jesus and his mother Mary, the wise men are overjoyed. Their long journey was over. They had finally arrived. What a relief. But more importantly, there he was. The promised king, God's Messiah, was there before him. And we're told that they fell down and they worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him the gifts which they had brought. Now Mary and Joseph are simple people. They're living on a carpenter's wage. And I imagine they would be speechless as they see these containers opened with these incredible gifts that are placed before their child. Gifts of gold and, and incense and myrrh. Gifts that have incredibly high value and are completely out of place in such humble accommodations, but gifts that are extremely suitable for expressing honor due a king. Now, the wise men carried gifts that were fit for paying homage to royalty. And as they presented them to Jesus, they could not have known the significance of what these gifts would mean. And they also could not have known the foreshadowing of what these gifts would mean in his life as well. Now, throughout church history, the gifts that the wise men carry hold a special meaning but they also hold a deeper significance that sometimes is lost on us. Now, first of all, these gifts are of extreme value, which means that they're perhaps God's way of making provision for the family's needs. Because very soon, as he followed the story to conclusion, an angel will warn Joseph of the impending threat to Jesus' life, and the angel will warn him that they need to flee to Egypt. Because later on, we find that Herod learns he's been duped by these wise men, and so they don't go back to Herod, they go back home by a different route. And even more fearful now, being overthrown, Herod declares that all the boys under the age of two must be killed. And so perhaps, perhaps these gifts funded that flight to Egypt. Perhaps that sustained them while they spent that time in Egypt. But more importantly, I think, in, in, in addition, what i like to focus upon is these gifts also reveal not only who Jesus is, but they foreshadow who he was to become. See, the first gift of gold that was given is the most highly valued and precious of all metals. And gold was symbolic of royal power. And gold was symbolic of royal status, where people who were in positions of authority, positions of royalty, would make jewelry and ornaments, even household, common household items like utensils, out of gold, Just to show a sense of status as being royalty. And gold was fitting to affirm that Jesus was king. And his kingdom extends beyond just Israel itself. But what about the incense? Well, incense was an item that was burned to give off a sweet odor at the time of sacrifices. In this case, frankincense. And we read in the Old Testament that frankincense was the incense that was permitted upon the altar of God. And as that incense was burned, it has come to symbolically be referenced to deity. Therefore, in this gift, we see Jesus is not only the human king of the Jews, but this is foreshadowing, pointing towards the reality that Jesus is the incarnation of God himself. As the incense is being symbolic of his deity. And what does myrrh have to do with anything? We don't often see myrrh or even encounter myrrh. Most of us have a hard time spelling myrrh because it's spelled funny with two R's in it. But myrrh is is a fragrant gum, uh, uh, sorry, a fragrant gum resin that comes from trees. It's used in perfumes. It's, It's used in medicine. It's used in other forms of incense as well. But one of the most common applications of where you would find myrrh used is in the preparation of a body for burial. And if you read in John 19, 30 years later after this, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would find 75 pounds of myrrh that they would use to prepare Jesus' body for burial after his death upon the cross. You see, even in the first months of Jesus' life, it's foreshadowing who he is and the purpose for which he came. Jesus was not just a teacher. He didn't just come to impress with miracles. He didn't come just to challenge religious, political, and social structures. He came to reveal the kingdom of God. And he came to make payment for our sins. That he may become the only king of kings and lord of lords and savior of all. Now, that's where the story ends, but did you ever think about what happens to these wise men after they go back home? What an absolutely incredible story they would have to take with them back to their homeland. They would have a testimony. They would have, actually, let's refer to it as a faith story. They would have a faith story going back home of God's faithfulness to his promise from centuries earlier. They would have a story of God's goodness, of his guidance, of his provision, because he guided them via the star to the city, to the very home where Jesus was. They would have a story of a God who is approachable, of a God who is relational, of one who chose to reveal himself as a child of meager means. And in one way, as those wise men go home with these stories proclaiming this and sharing this with all the people that they would know in their land, in one way, these are some of the very first missionaries that are sent back to their homeland as they carried the news of Jesus to their people. Now, how do you think people would have responded to their stories? I don't know. I don't know how they would have responded. But I do know this. I do know that as of that point... There was a new king in town, and they all had a choice to make. They all had to answer the question, who is Jesus? And that same choice is clearly presented to us today. And I don't know what you're seeking in the year ahead. I don't know where this year ahead will lead you. But I can tell you that the wise still seek Jesus. That in 2017, the wise will still seek Jesus. They'll desire to know him. So that he may perhaps for the first time fill in that God shaped hole in our hearts. And that all begins with that first initial decision, where we decide to seek, but then to accept Jesus, who is both able and worthy to be the Savior of our lives. And after we make that initial confession, it continues as we choose to draw closer. To allow God to draw us into a deeper understanding and relationship with Jesus. So that he becomes the Lord of our steps. This is all possible because the manger points to the cross. The manger points to the cross.